Hi, I'm Marie Edwards, your State Member of Parliament for Bendigo West. Castlemaine and district, including Campbell's Creek, Newstead, Malden, Tewton and Harcourt are important parts of my electorate. If you have any questions or anything you wish to discuss that concerns the State Government, I'm here to help. Please phone 5410 for an appointment. Spoken and authorised by M. Edwards, 16 Lockwood Road, Kangaroo Flat, funded from Parliamentary Budget. Marie Edwards, supporting Main FM. The Quiet Carriage, 94.9 Main FM show all about books and authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and proudly sponsored by Stoneman's Book Room. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. This is our second last episode of the year. Would you believe it? The year has flown in, but also at the same time it kind of feels like it's been the longest year in history for obvious reasons. In other news, I've got a great episode for you today. Later in the show, it's going to be time for the TQC Book Club. And I have Sash McTee in as my guest, musician and DJ extraordinaire. And also many of you who listen to the station will know he is the host of the Record Low Show. And he'll be in later on to talk about one of his favorite books. First up, I'm going to be replaying you an interview the author David Wish Wilson did with Fiona Hardy in conjunction with Fremantle Press and Readings, and it's part of the Shot in the Dark series. You might remember we had David on around about this time last year promoting his last book, True West, and he's become a great friend of the show. First, a little bit about the author. David Wish Wilson is the author of seven novels and three creative non-fiction books. He was born in Newcastle, New South Wales, but raised in Singapore, Victoria and Western Australia. He left Australia, aged 18, to live for a decade in Europe, Africa and Asia, where he worked as a barman, actor, street seller, petty criminal, labourer, exterminator, factory worker, gardener, clerk, travel agent, teacher and drug trial guinea pig. David's first novel in the Frank Swan crime series, Line of Sight, published by Penguin, was shortlisted for a Ned Kelly Award in 2012. He has since written three more in the series, Zero at the Bone, Old Scores, and Shoreleave. The first three books in the series have been published in Germany by Surkramp Verlag. David wrote the Perth book in the New South Wales Book City series, which was shortlisted for a WA Premier's Book Award. He currently lives in Fremantle, Western Australia, with his partner and three children, where he teaches creative writing at Curtin University. And a little bit about his new book, Shoreleave. It is Fremantle in 1989, and Frank Swan is at home, suffering from an undiagnosed and debilitating illness. When Frank is called in to investigate an incident at a local brothel, it soon appears there is a link between the death of two women and the arrival of the U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier Carl Vinson in the port city. Shoreleave is the fourth in the Frank Swan series and also features Lee Southern, the main character from True West. And here is the author David Wish Wilson in conversation with Fiona Hardy. And it begins with David reading a chapter from Shoreleave, told from the perspective of the character Devin Smith, who is a USS midshipman. Devin Smith wiped his hands on his US Navy coveralls and closed the lid on the industrial dishwasher, waiting to hear the churn of water. The damn thing wasn't working properly. He and Marcus had pre-washed the thousands of dishes by hand before putting them in the machine. Devin had earlier emptied the clogged drain, then crawled beneath the bench top to check the plumbing, while Marcus, who was a black six-footer, looked on with folded arms. Marcus was like that. He'd ask him to do something hard and dirty and he'd puff his lips and shake his head. He wasn't lazy, but he also wasn't going to get his hands dirty before some white man had given it a try. Devon Smith and Marcus were the same rank of kitchen patrol shit kicker. There was nothing Devon could do about Marcus because their supervisor, Lenny Arnold, was also black. 
Devon knew that they played cards together on the rear deck after their shifts, whereas outside of work hours, Devon and Marcus lived entirely separate lives. US Navy was supposed to be a family where the only colour that mattered was the uniform, but that wasn't how it went down. Racial politics on board the USS Carl Vinson were no different than back in the US, which was all right by Devon Smith. Devon looked to the clock and saw that it was 1640. Because of the delay, fresh dishes wouldn't be ready for the dinner service unless they both hauled ass, but he needn't have worried. Marcus and Lenny began to pick up the hand-washed dishes and give them a cursory wipe with a, wipe with a tea towel before loading them onto the trolleys to stand for the mess. Smith took a towel and went to work alongside them. It was near 100 degrees in the kitchen, and the months of sweat and heavy lifting since the Carl Vincent began its tour meant that his arms were corded with muscle. A day out from port in a white country, and Devon wanted to look his best. The only thing he knew about Australia came from the film Crocodile Dundee, and the excited stories of his fellow seamen from their tour a couple of years ago. Summer whites were being pressed and shoes polished. Plans were being hatched around the best places to get laid. Like every unmarried man on the aircraft carrier, Smith was looking to get his nut, but that wasn't all. A man needed a plan, his father had taught him, and he and his father had devised a strategy that would potentially see him rich enough to quit the service. This fact made it easier to stomach working alongside Lenny and Marcus, who, as usual, were talking too, la too loud and barely laughing at things that weren't even funny. You probably twigged there that Devin Smith has some uh, neo-Nazi sympathies there. Actually, one of the things I really like about your writing is that um, white supremacists frequently get punched in the face and it's a very satisfying thing to read. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was wondering what it was that made you kind of choose to explore racism in your writing and um, in a way that maybe a lot of other Australian crime fiction doesn't really kind of, it's a place we don't always go to. So kind of what, what made you decide to go there? Well, you know, I think I, I think good crime fiction can be entertaining but also explore interesting things about the world we live in. And like many people, I guess, over the last five or ten years, I've become cre increasingly alarmed by the way things are heading. Um, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about the election today. But, uh, <laughs> we can't. Yeah, so I'm just watching this slow normalisation of dog whistling and... and, and racist sympathies and I wanted to um, you know I explored it with True West my last my last novel mm. and I wanted to go back to a time um, when things were a little bit more open um, and so I've got Devin Smith who is bringing his particular brand of American um, racism which his father has learned in Californian prisons into Australia and in answer to your question, I also think, I mean, there's a bit of history with Australian crime fiction over the longer term uh, being political. Mm. Um, when mine and a few other crime writers' novels were, were reviewed in uh, the German newspaper Der Spiegel, um, Spiegel, it mentioned that they were very political crime novels, um, okay. which surprised me because, you know, I, I read widely like, like everyone, I guess. Um, but thinking about it, I guess, the, you know, there's, there's some kind of truth to that. Again, you're looking at social issues, and, and this goes back to crime fiction written in Australia in the 19th century, which was a pretty strong kind of period. And, yeah, so I, I suppose um, I'm drawing on a deeper, a, de a deeper tradition by doing it. At least that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> um, and, and you get to punch Nazis in the face. Oh, God, it's so good. I'd love to, love to see a Nazi get punched. It's one of my favourite things about your books. No, there's a lot. <laughs> um, so with, your, with, your, with Frank Swan himself, so you've got the four Frank Swan books and then you've got things like True West where it's kind of like tangentially within the Frank Swan world, I should say. And, um, yeah, was that? did you have a trajectory with your first book that you've kept through? Has, thing, has it changed at all? And do you have a different one now? Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I wrote Line of Sight, I wrote it for um, a particular person. He was the youngest son of this brothel madam who was murdered by police in Western Australia in 1975. And I thought it was just going to be a one-off. Um, it was, you know, my first novel had kind of crimey elements. Um, but I just, I wasn't, I didn't know what I was going to write after that, to be honest. Uh, but part of my, the research for that, story was because as because as um at the time i was doing my research there was still so much fear and trepidation about this particular murder um i went out and spoke to dozens and dozens and dozens of people and just trying to kind of triangulate stories trying to work out tr uh, 
the difference between truth and fiction and legend and mythologization and all those kinds of things. And when Line of Sight came out, um, I realised that there were just so many wonderful stories about Perth related to crime that hadn't been told um, because, you know, it's pretty hard to write about these kinds of stories if you're a journalist or a historian because you need things to be on the record. Um, you mm. need there to be evidence. You need to tell both sides of a story. So I, I thought um, I'll try and kind of write a series that captured some of these stories about uh that I think are significant. So the next, the next one, Zero at the Bone, looks at um, the stock market scams that are going on, the beginning of heroin importation into, into Perth at a time when Perth was a transit point for heroin coming into Australia. Um, like I said, Old Scores looks at uh, the WA Inc period, which is a pretty rich vein of material for a crime writer. Um, and yeah, and True West was a, 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 a sorry, a, yeah, True West was a specific look at the the strength the sad strength of the neo-nazi scene in perth in the late 1980s so mm. did your research for this well actually yeah so did you research for this book in particular bring any like really interesting moments did you find anything particularly stunning when you were researching this book no this 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 one was um a real joy to write i mean it's it's i mean my favorite kind of research is going out and talking to people Mm. Um, in this in this case, the the my only people I talked to were um, people who I'm a member of a, a a pub in Fremantle called the Navy Club, and as a, as you guess from the name, a lot of the people who drink in there are old kind of sailors from from all all walks of life and all ranks. So I I, I went and asked a few stories, in, uh, asked a few questions in there, and heard a few interesting stories, but most of the um, most of the things that informed my desire to write the story, I had a, an idea of before I started. Mm. Um, and they relate back to some experiences when I was a kid, really. Um, one when I was 18 or 19 years old, living in Mombasa in Kenya. And um, a lot of my friends at that time were uh, working prostitutes. And, you know, I lived in a cheap hotel and these were great, great bunch of people. And um, it was a port, so their main custom was sailors. And while it was quite entertaining listening to their stories of the different characteristics of the different nationalities of men who kind of came through, had some very strange things to say about drunk Australians. Which, uh, mm. But uh, we, at, when, when I was living there, um, a US Navy ship came to port and these women were quite excited by that because Americans are traditionally big spenders. But they were also quite nervous, and um, they told me that on previous visits, um, some serious assaults had happened, and allegedly a, a murder or two that was never investigated, because the ship left straight straight away. I was only there for two mm. or three days, and then shot out. And I remember thinking then how well that that really troubled me because it seemed, um, you know, that what a perfect cover for a sex offender or a, or a, a sexual sadist or a murderer to to be a member of a navy that just turns up in port and then before there's any chance of being caught, you're already safely away and you may never return again. And then when I was working up in Japan as a bartender in Tokyo and I used to work the midnight to dawn shift and most of the um, customers at about 4am, 3am in the morning were um, American sailors and Marines who had missed the last train home and so they just sit there drinking tequila and I got to chat with them pretty quiet in those hours. And so I got to hear some some pretty good stories about life on board the aircraft carrier. And one of those guys basically jumped ship and started working in the bar and um, mm. we became quite good friends. And so he told me lots of stories about life on board the aircraft carrier to do with racial politics, but also the way the black market worked. And I, I, I turned those two kind of experiences, the one in Mombasa and the one in Tokyo uh, into shore leave without having to do too much research in the present tense. Did you get to go on an aircraft carrier at any point? Probably not. <laughs> no, I, 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 I didn't, but um, we, I used to trade things with, with sailors, um, food and alcohol basically, so, you know, legs of lamb I used to get from Australian sailors. And anyway, that's a different, whole different story. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
That was Dirty Beaches with their track Lord Knows Best. And now we return to the interview David Wish Wilson did with Fiona Hardy as part of a Shot in the Dark, which is recorded by Fremantle Press. And David is discussing his latest novel via Fremantle Press called Shoreleave. Actually, one of the things I was wondering, so David and I uh, were like Facebook and Twitter friends and he, the stories that he suddenly just like, you know, his picture from my past and it's like got some amazing story attached to this picture. And you just think, I want to hear more about this. Do you, do you think you've got more stories in your past that you can mine for future, future books? Uh, or memoir? Yeah. So, that, I mean, I guess I, I go back. I've never turned anything that's happened in my life really into my fiction. Um, and I don't know if I'd ever write memoir because those things happened a long time ago and I'd never kept a diary or anything. So there's a few stamps in passports, but I'm very hazy about the actual dates when I was where. <laughs> and that was a pretty hazy time all around. Um, but, yeah, people I've met and the stories they've told me, um, the things I've learned about the people I've met, um, I have turned those kinds of things into, into, you know, sometimes I've amalgamated characters or I've taken a story and worked it in, just as I have here with Shoreleaf. Mm-hmm. But no, I, maybe um, I'm hoping if I live to be a ripe old age, my memory, my long, they say your long-term memory gets better. Um, if, that, if that's the case, maybe I'd have a stab at it then. But at the moment, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think it would work. Um, I know that some of our listeners are kind of interested in the writing aspect as well. So how do you, like, your your books are so sharp. Like, I really barreled through Shoreleaf and it was, like, kind of mid-lockdown and I was feeling a bit like, oh, like, I actually found it very hard to read anything during lockdown. I couldn't really get into any books. I would pile them up. I would buy them because I was still working in my bookshops, bookshop's warehouse, so I still had access to them. I'd bring them home and I would pick them up and I would just be like, Actually, I can't. I can't invest my brain into this. I can't think this clearly. And then I picked this up, and I got through it in like a day and a half. It was really just so, so exciting and just so interesting and so well written. Um, how do you, how do you plot? <laughs> like, how do you get something like this? Do you, are you, a, do you just kind of go, or do you have index cards and like red string everywhere? Do you have a plan? Yeah, no. I wish I was a planner, but no, I'm a, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm a total pantser. So I usually. With all of these stories, I start with my three characters and I don't really know how they're going to meet one another or what their real relationship is. Um, Because I'm quite busy outside of my writing life, I don't get big chunks of time to write. So I think the pacing is probably an aspect of having an hour, you know, or or an hour and a half and I sit down and I'll write. So the chapter length is probably a reflection of that. I'll get to write a chapter in one person's voice and then maybe the next day I'll have another hour, an hour and a half. Um, that's usually how I do it, but it's also a, I guess, a reflection of the fact that I'm not a planner. I, I just start and I learn about my characters as I go along. I mean, often I just start with a name and a, mm. just an, Im- an image of a face, uh, as was the case with these guys. Um, and as I'm writing, I'm learning about them and hopefully they're surprising me and saying interesting things and doing interesting things. And the plot just is really... Um, the plot just develops out of those particular characters and I usually have no idea what is going to happen next, which is quite exhilarating, quite anxiety-producing <laughs> too. It's not, it's not the ideal situation. So I do admire, I do admire people who, uh, who, who can make a plan and kind of stick to it. But, yeah, the pacing, the pacing and the, uh, you know, it, it, the, the structures of the story too, it's, it's a result of zipping around from here, from A to B in my life, yeah. Yeah, how do you, as a like a, a father and somebody with a, a job at Curtin University, how do you fit, where do you fit writing in around all that? Well, I'm, I'm lucky because I get one day a week as part of my job to, to write uh, to, or to do research or all kinds of research. So that's, that's fantastic. And also um, when everyone else is asleep. So I'm not, I'm not really a morning person. I, I used to get up really early in the morning, but I, I I find it difficult to do that now. Uh, but fortunately, everybody in my family is usually asleep by 10 and I'm a bit of a night owl. So that often means I get two or three hours um, of peace and quiet. Even the dog is asleep. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the house is just perfectly quiet. And so I get it. I, often I start, uh, you know, I'm tired. It's the end of a long day. I don't really feel like writing. So I just kind of trick myself 
I say I just do a bit of bit of editing, and before you know it, I'm you know one thing leads to another. So it's stealing stealing time wherever I can. Smart move, I like it. <laughs> um, regarding the writing as well, like um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. You're too distracting. You've got interesting train. You say interesting things, then I'm like, I'm going to talk, ask, talk about this, and then you say something. And I've lost my train of thought because I'm too busy listening instead of doing my job. <laughs> um, do you think it's like a, a kind of collaborative process, do you find, with your writing? Do you um, bounce ideas off your editor or anything like that or are you more, does that, you save that for the end? Do you, yeah, is it, is it like teamwork for you or is it quite a solo mission? So it's, quite a, it's quite a solo mission. I'm, I'm one of those um, superstitious type people. Because, because um, I don't really know where a story is going or even what it's about, um, I find it very hard to talk about it while I'm doing it to anyone. What I, and what I said probably wouldn't make much sense because often, <laughs> often it's not until the final five or six chapters that I know where the story is really, really going. So, yeah, it would just be a garbled mess if I did try and bounce ideas off someone. <laughs> uh, so it's pretty solo activity, but I'm, I'm lucky once I've written a... Um, what is hopefully a polished first draft. Um, I've got a really great editor at Fremantle Press, Georgia Richter, and, yeah, so I find the editing-writer um, relationship and process to be um, very informative. I, I mean, in the sense that I learn a lot about writing from that, from that process as well, but also, you know, something that's very uh, conducive or very good for the... The end, the end kind of product where you get asked hard questions or you get, um, you know, editing is done and suggestions are made and then, then things can be teased out and developed a little bit further. I'm, I also have a couple of um, friends who are my first readers. So, but again, it doesn't happen until the, the, the first draft is done. So one friend of mine who is a big reader, um, and in fact, this book is dedicated to him. He's a, a camping buddy of mine, who I met when uh, I was used to teach in, you know, in the prison system here. For Mark, <laughs> um, I, I was going to add, um, what's his what's his rank in the Dancing Panda Regiment? But no, he he didn't. He wanted me to take that out. Um, <laughs> oh, I lost my train of thought now. Yeah, so <laughs> I, 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 sorry. He, I, he he's really he's a he's a font of knowledge on all things to do with weapons and cars and music. So I run things by him from that angle and I have a couple of other friends who give me really good structural advice. You know, that's flat in the middle. Um, Andrew Netty in Melbourne has been been fantastic. True West was dedicated to him. Mm. And and a, and a number of other people who, yeah, they're, they're, they're people who, um, yeah, they will tell me, tell me what I need to hear if something's not working, which is Actually, really I find my very first reader has to be, I have a friend who will just tell me very reassuring things about how good it is, even if it's terrible. And I kind of just need that to be able to send it to the next editor and they can tell me all the things that I need to fix. But I just need the first person to say, oh, Fiona, it's a masterpiece. And I'm like, I am actually the best writer ever, aren't I? You're right. Okay, I can send this off now. It's fine. Just need that kind of constant reassurance to help me out. Do you find that writer's block is ever a problem for you? I've had, like, people ask me how other writers can kind of deal with deal with writer's block has that ever been something you've had a problem with um not really um but i have been asked about it by other by other writers i think usually because i'm so time poor um i i just w w when i'm there i just have to be kind of present because i need to make the most of the the, the little time that i've got mm. but uh, so it's so i the advice i usually give is about being there regularly as possible so you you train your brain but also um for me, writing is a bit of a confidence trick I play on myself with the first. In terms of the first draft, like when I wrote my first novel, it took me years and it was excruciating, and I basically had a nervous breakdown halfway through it. It was it was quite uh, it, was, it was quite traumatic, and so ever since then, because I don't want to go back there. Ever since then, I just tell myself, I, I take the pressure off myself, and this is the advice I give. I just say, it's a first draft. If it's shit, it doesn't matter. You know, no one really cares. You're you're going to be the only one reading it anyway. Um, don't put any pressure on yourself. Don't take it too seriously. And I find if I do that, um, you know, that kind of doubting voice is, is is dissipated. But of course, meanwhile, my my brain, which does want to write well, is is kind of takes over. So I'm aware that I'm tricking myself, but um, and I'm I'm aware that I am taking it seriously, but. 
I, I find that kind of reassuring that when I just say, look, it doesn't matter if, if I write 50,000 words and it goes in the bin, well, so be it. And I, I, I find somewhere the balance between, between those two things, I, I, I take a middle path. Mm. So actually, speaking of giving advice, uh, you are a teacher at a, a professor at um, Curtin University. Do you ever ignore your own advice that you find you're giving other people about creative writing? You've given me a pay rise there calling me a professor. Sorry. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't go to university. I'm not sure of the ranking. <laughs> Just go with it. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll take it even if it's fictional. Um, do, I, do I not follow my own advice? Um, no, not not specifically. Although I, I'm always aware when I'm when I'm teaching about the difference between um, the talking about the tech because the, the the course I teach in is pretty technically based. It's for, it's very practical, um, which I find is which I find is good. Uh, what is what is different when I actually start uh, sit down to write is the recognition that it's still such an instinctive process for me. Um, I can I can know all these things. I can teach all of these things. Um, but once you've been doing it for a while, like I feel I have, um, so much of it does kind of become instinctive. Mm. And, uh, and True West, the novel before this, was for me um, an exercise in writing instinctively. I really just wanted to write something quite quickly and see how... how see whether all of those things that I've learned over the years can happen purely without thinking about it, going back and editing and all of that. Or, and all of that. Um, so, so there's, so there's that, but also, yeah, I mean, I also find the teaching process, um, strangely enough, I find that the teaching process talking about all of those technical aspects of writing, I get a lot out of it too, because um, I forget as we all as we all do um how important some of these things are so i find myself even even while i'm talking i was like you didn't do that in when you're writing that you didn't do that when you're writing that yesterday. you know like so I, I get a lot out of it even that even as I'm, I'm doing the job actually um speaking of being instinctive that voice that you have is like it's just such a really gripping kind of it's really sharp but also kind of laconic amazing australian voice um, do, do you find you have to work to write these, like especially because there's three different voices, do you have to work hard to kind of make them separate or does it feel like it comes quite naturally to you? Yeah, I, I, I enjoy writing in that, in, in the kind of voice in, of the Frank, Frank Swan novels, mm. but it, it does come naturally because it's the voices I hear around me, I guess. It's, it's probably the one closest to my to my lived life. Um, I don't have to work. I mean, yeah, so the style has developed over the years. It's become more pared back, um, um, a little bit clearer or cleaner, I hope. But at the same time, sometimes I, 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 I get a bit tired of that. And um, so every now and then I've written other things. So there's a creative nonfiction book about Perth and mm. A couple of years ago, there was a novel called *The Coves*, which is set in San Francisco in 1849, and that's a really. Both of those books allowed me to write more lyrically. Uh, so I enjoy, you know, the, the writing um, has to be about pleasure for me as well. Um, so I, I do find it pleasurable writing a very spare or plain kind of um, story like the Swan ones. But there are also times when I just want to break out and discover discover as I'm writing um, or extend myself a little bit in terms of, you know, a lyric voice. Um, that's fun too. And the, the, the next novel coming out um, next year or the year after, again, is set in 1850s. Okay. It's about an escaped uh, Australian Irish convict. And it's just, it's written in this really, the whole book is written in, you know, mainly in his voice. And again, it's just totally unlike um Frank Swan's voice, for example. So the, mm. these are, I think of these as little holidays from uh, from the regular Australian uh, lingo, which mm. I also which I also enjoy writing.
What's happening around town? How can I find out? The Castlemaine Mail has all you'll ever need to know and more. Business, sport and all the local goss. Grab your copy from the Castlemaine newsagent and other selected local outlets every Friday and look out for the Main FM program guide on the last Friday of every month. The Castlemaine Mail, a proud sponsor of Main FM. Go solar with Central Spark. We design, install and maintain all of our solar power systems. Our local installers service Central Victoria. We'll travel to Bendigo, Dalesford, Kyneton and areas in between. We offer a full range of services, grid connect, off-grid and hybrid battery solutions, as well as maintenance and repairs. Contact your local solar specialist today for a free quote for your home or business. Find us at central-spark.com or on Facebook at Central Spark Victoria. Proud supporter of Main FM. There we heard Bad Dreams with their track, My Only Friend. And before that, we heard the author David Wish Wilson in conversation with Fiona Hardy as part of the A Shot in the Dark series by Fremantle Press in conjunction with Readings Books there in Melbourne. And David was discussing his new novel, Sure Leave, out now via Fremantle Press. And now on The Quiet Carriage, it's one of my favorite segments, the TQC Book Club. And we have one of my favorite people from the station. Maybe my favorite person. There you go. Thank you, mate. I I don't want to upset anyone else, but you you could be. Uh, (laughs) As a guest, Sash McTee from The Record Low Show. How you doing, Sash? I'm really well, mate. I'm really well. Thanks for inviting me on. That's okay. Are you, you, obviously, you're known for music. Right. Um, Right. You have a bit of a love of books, though, I do believe. Funny, but yeah, I, I do, but it's all ancient texts. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the one you've picked today, which is probably mm. the oldest one, yeah. apart from maybe the Bible or Bibles from, you know, various mm. denominations. But uh, yeah, mm. go ahead, introduce it. Um, a book that's always stayed with me is the Iliad. By Homer. There you go. Yeah. And is it bad that I haven't read this? No, no. Okay, because I didn't press no. you earlier because I said I had read the Epic of Gilgamesh. But that's that's really impressive, though. I can't Dragon? believe you read okay. that. Yeah. I don't know if we're going for impressive points or not. Of course not. Why did you read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Someone, I was in London, was working in London, and someone gave it to me, and I read it. It's quite quite thin, because yeah. I think Iliad's quite quite bulky. The Epic of Gilmesh is something you can read in, you know, a few hours. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't really tell you what it's about. I mean, at the time, I enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, I got a lot out of it. Mm. Looking back, I, I can't really recall what it was about. Mm. What is, what's the Iliad about? I mean, I uh, from what I know, uh, it's a journey, mm. isn't it? Well, the only thing that exists actually is just the bit where... Um, um, Agamemnon goes into Achilles's tent and says, mm-hmm. come on, fight, stop larking about. And he's all sulking in his tent. And then when he gets involved, he completely trashes the other side. Yeah. And then um, the all that really remains is, um, after that, is um, the wooden horse. But it's... Yes. But it's all the other bits that are around it, they're mm-hmm. all just passed out orally it's not they don't actually exist anymore okay there's about another seven or eight books around it actually so um but it's a funny one not Mm. by homer by other authors there yeah yeah homer was the only one that sort of got it wrote down in 800 bc there were other books available there was books in the library of um alexandria Mm -hmm. that uh, got burnt down in cairo right alexandria actually but um, and and they've all gone. A lot of books went in that fire. Famous right. books. But, uh, right. Yeah. So, the version we have now is a sort of interpretation that's been passed down orally. Uh, well, it was always oral, and home, we're not even sure if Homer really existed, actually. Um, but um, it's definitely our person's voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to think um, mm-hmm. in scholars. It does seem to have a feeling that it's one person telling a story, actually. But um, and that's from 800 BC. But the actual um, 
conflict um, that it talks about is probably about 1250 BC. Really? Um, yeah. And they can, they've done pretty good archaeology in the past hundred mm-hmm. years, actually, to pick it out of the dirt. Yeah. In fact, there's actually um, a a Syrian tablet, no, a Hittite tablet, and it actually very excitingly um, mentions the name of Paris and wow. um, creating skirmishes on the edge of what what is now Turkey. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm really into that. I could waffle about that for hours. <laughs> so, yeah. what? Why are we still talking about this today? Why has it resonated for mm. so long? I think um, the major thing that um, comes out of it is that, although it's um, it stems from um, an oral history from a time of heroes, and uh, there are certain shadows of reality actual things that happened, for instance, mm-hmm. the conflicts, and also the unification of the different citadels in Greece, uh, which made it probably feel like Greece for the first time, because they were just all small kingdoms, really, before that. But uh, apart from that, um, the uh, human um, tragedy um, that's in it all is it's absolutely everybody is um, flawed absolutely everybody is um, affected in some way um, there's not a single character in it that isn't um, well perfect for a start you know there's vanity vainglory there's uh, there's um, oh churlishness childishness there's, there's every it's I mean you know it probably takes you right up to I think the major lesson from it is is like in in, in um Macbeth, for instance, mm. like Shakespeare, wherever it's just like um, you, um, you, you with you with Macbeth all the way to the end, even though he's the he's the villain, you yeah, know. Yeah. But that's uh, very much the feel of um, the Iliad, where you you kind of um, yeah, you're embroiled in the, the tragedy of it, yeah, you know? and you really feel like the sword hitting sinew and shins and shoulders and stuff. It's really quite gruesome, yeah. really, yeah. Isn't it amazing that that amount mm. of time can pass? And, you know, you look at us, we've had the Industrial Revolution, mm. the Technological Revolution that we're still going through today, mm. and yet we as people can still relate to struggles that people were going through. Well, yes. 3,000 years yeah. ago. They were exactly the same as us. They just yeah. didn't have the solutions that we came up with at that time, you know, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. And what's the mm. um, version that you said you like the best? Well, um, I think um, translation. Um, the, my first version of it was by um, uh, a chap called Roger Lancel Green, who did a lot of folklore books in the fifties and the sixties. And uh, I'm not from the fifties and sixties. There were just a load of those books that were around in the library when I was growing up. So I was always into reading those sort of things, mythologies yeah. and things like that. So he did like Greek tales, and but he also did King Arthur and Robin Hood and things like that. But um, I really remember. Um, in the Greek tales, one that I had that the majority of the half of the book was um, apart from Jason and Theseus and all the other Greek myths. There was the Iliad, and then the Odyssey actually, mm-hmm. and um, and um, I always came back to the Iliad. And then when I was about fourteen, fifteen, I picked up the uh, the major edition, the famous edition, which is the. Robert Graves. Nobody really thinks it's been better since, really. Right. But um, that's the that's the translation, the Robert Graves one. Yeah. Yeah. And did this mm. come to you via school? Um, only in as much it was in the, it was school library because nobody yeah. really no 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 nobody taught me Greek yeah, myths. Yeah. I was just always fascinated with Greek myths. Yeah. Don't know what it was really. And did you go on and, and study the classics or anything? Well, you know, and it sort of coincided with um, Indiana Jones. And, right. Uh, <laughs> Doesn't everything? <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it actually went, oh, God, I just, I just, sorry, I nearly swore then. I really want to be uh, an archaeologist. This is yeah. amazing. And um, and then when I said that, I just got, like, typically by my family, just loads and loads of books thrown at me by relatives and stuff. And one of them was um, um, a book called... Um, Footsteps by somebody Norman, and it was about seven or eight 
um, voyages um, of pioneering archaeologists, and one of them was um, Schliemann, who was the guy who um, believed in Troy so much, he went out and found it. Right. Which is crazy when yeah. you think about it. <laughs> he actually found Troy. Yeah. So it was, you know, it, it had been lost. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And is the Iliad, is it something you revisit? Every so often. Mm, yeah, and uh, it's it's a funny one because I would never read it all the way through like I did once maybe when I was 18 properly but because um, it was quite difficult when I was reading it when I was 14. But um, now I know it back to front, sort of. I can just dip in it and know where I am. I can even pick it up and find the bits that I want to reread. There's bits like... Um, um, the description of the landscape seen from Troy, and they, they can see um, in the night time the Greek um, army camping down on uh, the, the plains of Troy, and mm-hmm. um, and how it looked and how it's described as uh, a reflection of the night sky. It's so beautiful, actually, yeah. the way that it's written. I could never do it justice retelling it. Yeah, yeah. But um, it's those things that um, they're amazing, and I mean, it's just it's about half a mile away from Gallipoli or something like that yeah. as well. So yeah. it's a funny part of the world. Yeah. Mm. Are you a fan of any contemporary fiction as well? Well, um, it's a funny one. I'm a, I struggle with fiction a lot, actually. Um, um, but I used to devour it, and I used to love stuff like um, uh, Master and the Margarita, I loved, mm. and, um, and I also loved uh, all the William Burroughs stuff. Yeah, particularly the cut-up stuff that he did with Byron um, Geisen, and um, a sort of surreal, surrealist fiction that I used to really like. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know, mate. Um, it's funny. The, the, you know what? The ones that really, really stick with me as well would be all of the Douglas Adams stuff. So, yes. Uh, yeah. All the Hitchhiker stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the same as well. I actually couldn't read Hitchhikers now because it'd be so boring. <laughs> yeah, but um, only in as much as not. It's not that it is boring. It's just it's just I've overread it. But it's yeah. like, um, um, yeah, I, I've I've probably reread that passage uh, at the beginning of the Restaurant at the Universe a bit too much as well, where they have come out of the um, impossibility drive and they're turned into couches watching. I think cricket, I think it is, before that they actually turn back into humans slowly, slowly, slowly. Yeah, I haven't read it in a couple yeah. of years. It's on the school yeah. curriculum. Well, it was a couple of years ago. No they started. I think it was uh, year nine, year ten. Wow. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, it's, lucky it's, kids. it's dated pretty well. Kids are still into it. Wow. Yeah. Lucky, lucky kids. And now with mm. you, I mean, obviously... You're involved at the station, you mm. DJ, you work, you're a parent as well. Mm. Do you have as much time to read? You know, um, I always said um, I would always read loads to my kid. And mm. um, I actually, um, it's, I've got, to, I've got to admit, it's hard. It's a hard thing to do, actually, to get time together. And those are parents that do do that and dedicate time to do that. And my heart is completely mm. off to you. It's a very difficult thing to sort of do and really perhaps I should do a bit more and prioritise that for the um, a kid but um, actually um, aside reading from a kid which you didn't ask me about but I think it's important um, um, I don't you know not as much as I'd mm. like to um, I'm, I'm just got my head in um, um, in um, the music world way way too deep I reckon yeah. but um yeah, I'm just constantly listening to new stuff and reading uh, release reports from labels and um, and um, I tell you what though, I did recently read. Um, it's not fiction though. Um, this is the this is very typical of me. I read um, the um, newest book about craftwork, which is a yes. chap by a chap called yeah. Uwe uh, Uwe Schuter, I think his name is, mm-hmm. and that was incredible. Like yeah, blew me right. away. Yeah. yeah, I was really, really impressed with that book. Yeah, yeah. I that, do. Yeah, it was. I usually like. Uh, I used to read a lot of music books, and uh, 
and then I got very tired of it because they're all very sort of canon-esque. How many times can you read about the misadventures of <laughs> Rolling Stones and Beatles? But um, yeah, um, but that was that was really good. Yeah, they they basically are, um, they were amazing craftwork. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I do obviously. I love fiction, mm. but as you know, I do love a good biography as well. Mm. Yeah, and footy books, mate. Yeah. I do. It's a secret passion. Yeah, mm. <laughs> <laughs> biographies. Um, music. Mm. Well, you've got your show, Record mm. Low Show, which is on Tuesday nights, eight yeah. p.m. to ten p.m. Yeah, I do believe you've got something going on tonight in Castlemaine. Um, well. Funnily enough, yes, I have. Um, thank you for this. Um, <laughs> I got a grant last year, no, this year actually. It's been such a long year, hasn't it? Um, from uh, the council, and uh, what it was was I wanted to sort of do a workshop where I could get all these people together who knew how to work moogs or you know mad, mm-hmm. mad synths and show us all how to do it. And then it sort of developed and it became much, much bigger than that. And then again, it ended up being lots of people. There's actually loads of people in the area <laughs> that um, are knob twiddlers in their bedrooms. Right. <laughs> yes. Of um, the innocent variety. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, well, we've got them all together and then we've got them, um, we've got a, a few on the, on the, tonight at the Boomtown Winery. Yeah. And uh, there's three of them. There's a uh, Louise Terry's headlining. Then uh, she's actually an extremely good um, um, songwriter, electro pop uh, minstrel mm-hmm. I don't know how best to describe her. I think you should probably pop down and see her. She's mm-hmm. not to be missed at all. Um, and uh, Nicky System, who's um, mid-bill, and he is um, he does things with data. Mm-hmm. And it's very sort of glitchy, and um, I'd sort of say Aphex Twin, it kind of reminds me yeah, of it's, right. it's quite avant-garde, that one, and the one in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Ronnie Quasar, which is actually um, Matt Rolfs, uh, who's in a band called Secret Towns, yes, but he's got yeah. um, a, um electronic side project. And he's doing uh, some stuff there. And then I'll be DJing afterwards. Brilliant. After all that. And it's the, mm. what is it called? The Synth Society? You guys have got a it's, nice name. It's um, Castle Main Electronic Workshop. Right. Q. Okay. Yeah. And mm. launching tonight at Boomtown Winery. Boomtown. Which, for those not in the know, is behind the mill markets. Yeah. So 7.30 tonight. Is it uh, tickets? Do we have to pay it was tickets, but um, you can turn up on the door now, but you'll have to sign in like you do with yes. COVID. Um, and we'll have to, I'll have to take your name and number at the door. But um, I think there might be a point where I'll have to start turning people away because it's already sold out yep. for, the, for the actual tickets. So get down early. Yeah. I Such would a say. great venue as well. We had the mm. Rogies there on last Saturday, didn't we? Mm, we Fantastic did. venue. Yeah. Yeah, and I got a chance to DJ that night, so I got a chance to have a figure out what the sound is going to be like in that room. So there's going to be a lot going on. Actually, I forgot to mention there's a big art installation going on on the same night as well. So it's going to be uh, Nicky Systems doing like projections in the wall, but mm-hmm. also Frank Veltz is doing a load of stuff as well. Right. So that's going to be pretty special too. Frank Veltz from mm. Down the Rabbit Hole on uh, the yeah, station. Yeah, he's a, an artist in his own right. Yeah. Brilliant. So that's mm. 7.30 Friday tonight. Down at Boomtown Winery. Yeah. Sash, thanks so much for for dropping by and uh, best of luck tonight. I'll see you there. Thanks very much for inviting me on.
Sunny Moon with their track Never Thought and that followed my interview with Sash McTee who was my guest today on the TQC book club discussing one of his favorite novels and possibly one of the greatest novels of all time The Iliad by Homer and before that we also had David Wish Wilson in conversation with Fiona Hardy as part of Fremantle Press's A Shot in the Dark series that's all we have time for today My name has been Paul J. Laverty. I'm across all the socials under that name. And all previous episodes of The Quiet Carriage are available on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Next week, it's our final episode for the year. And we're going to have a bit of a fun, festive edition of The Quiet Carriage. So please tune into that. We're on Fridays at 1pm on the station and also mainfm.net. Until next time, keep reading. For the finest local and Victorian regional wine, look no further than Castlemaine Central Wine Store. They've got locally produced ciders, craft beer, plus a great range of everyday drinking wines at affordable prices. And they even sell gift vouchers. Castlemaine Central Wine Store, Littleton Street, Castlemaine. Monday to Saturday from 10.30am. A proud sponsor of 94.9 Main FM. Theatre Royal Castlemaine's Loyal Royal membership drive is on. Sign up for exclusive benefits including cinema discounts, early bird specials and much more. Serving dinner five nights a week plus lunch on weekends. Visit theatreroyalcastlemaine.com.au or follow them on socials for all the latest updates. Theatre Royal Castlemaine, entertaining Main FM sponsor.